Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 52, Making It, in which we see how synthetic chemistry advanced in the mid-20th century. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Patreon supporters of this podcast may download a supplemental sheet with molecular structures of many of the molecules I describe in this episode. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. In the last episode, I mentioned toward the end that Robert Woodward was one of the chemists in 1952 who determined the correct structure of the organometallic sandwich compound, ferrocene. Though Woodward was upset for a very long time that he didn't get a share of the Nobel Prize in 1973 for the discovery of ferrocene, he did receive a prize for other chemical work. Woodward was probably the preeminent synthetic organic chemist of the 20th century, and we shall see why. Robert Woodward was a New Englander through and through, and like so many other chemically interested kids, played with a chemistry set, though he was more intensely involved. In fact, he attempted many of the experiments in a well-known late 19th century laboratory manual written by Ludwig Gattermann, Practical Methods of Organic Chemistry, or colloquially known as the Kochbuch, cookbook in German. A gifted child, he started out at Massachusetts Institute of Technology at age 16, but failed out after a year because he didn't follow official class protocols, like ignoring the mandatory physical education class. A year after that, MIT allowed him to re-enroll, and he received a bachelor's degree in 1936 and finished his Ph.D. in chemistry in 1937 when he was 20, working on synthesizing the female hormone called estrone. He was appointed a professor at Harvard and spent the rest of his chemical and professional life there. His first major work was finding correlations in structure of organic compounds with peaks in ultraviolet spectroscopy in the early 1940s. And then World War II came along. The Polaroid company hired him to search for a new method of making polarizing filters, which traditionally used the organic compound iodoquinine. Now, iodoquinine turns out to be one of those compounds that polarizes light, so the Polaroid company found it quite necessary for their products. The compound is made from quinine, which we heard about in the 19th century, and William Perkins failed effort to synthesize it, and made mauve instead. Where did one get quinine in the 1940s? From the Dutch East Indies, where cinchona trees grow. But Japan invaded and occupied the Dutch East Indies, reducing the supply and any other quinine that might be available was sucked up by doctors in the military to prevent malaria in tropical combat. So Polaroid wanted to find a substitute for iodoquinine. Woodward wheeled and dealed with Polaroid and came to an agreement in 1942. 
they would fund his search for a synthesis of quinine, plus his postdoctoral researcher, William During. The actual structure for quinine was known since 1908, as found by Paul Rabe in Germany. Rabe determined that its antecedent was quinotoxine. Therefore, the real problem for Woodward was how to make synthetic quinotoxine. They were able to make quinotoxine, the precursor for quinine, by April 1944, with 15 different reactions in a sequence, starting from the compound benzaldehyde. The 15-step reaction was not particularly useful commercially, netting them a grand total of 30 milligrams of product, but it did put Woodward on the chemical map, so to speak. The military asked him to work on synthetic penicillin, but he wasn't successful. Woodward's next major project was the structure and synthesis of strychnine. He first solved the complete structure of strychnine, a complicated molecule, in 1948, and then was able to synthesize it in 1954. He then was able to synthesize biological molecules and pharmaceuticals as cholesterol, cortisone, lysergic acid, reserpine, chlorophyll, cephalosporin, and colchicine over the next couple of decades. Cholesterol is not only a fat dietitians say we have to watch out for, but it's one of those steroid molecules I mentioned some episodes ago. Cortisone is an important anti-inflammatory steroid medication. Lysergic acid is an alkaloid related to many psychoactive drugs. Reserpine brings down one's blood pressure. Chlorophyll is the energy-fixing molecule in plants with a magnesium coordinated inside an organic ring. Cephalosporin is a type of antibiotic. Colchicine is a drug to prevent gout. Woodward was able to get a lot of funding for his research from pharmaceutical companies, as you can imagine, because you have heard of these bioactive molecules. But even more than that, these chemical structures often have multiple chiral centers, carbons with four different things attached to them. And those things have to be attached with the correct geometry. If you get it backwards, the molecule might be ineffective or even extremely poisonous. Quinotoxine took 15 steps to make. Cortisone took 13 steps, with figuring out six different chiral carbon structures. Chlorophyll took four years, completed by 1960. Reserpine is often considered his most artistic synthesis. Yes, chemists find appeal in how interesting and elegant the process can be. So Woodward made quite a name for himself in the public eye for being a genius at synthesis, and in the chemical eye, for picking among the downright hardest sorts of molecules to solve. You can find some internet video clips of him and hear his strong New England accent. He was known for wearing blue ties to his lectures, only wearing blue suits, perhaps chain-smoking his way through them as well. He gave Thursday evening seminars that often lasted into the wee hours, often including a bottle of whiskey to help smooth thoughts along. He gave lectures always with the title, quote, 
recent advances in the chemistry of natural products, unquote. They lasted as long as he deemed necessary to complete the ideas, but usually were more than three hours long. The theoretical chemist Edgar Heilbronner invented the unit Woodward as five hours and twenty minutes of lecture time. But his strategies worked. Why did he do it this way? A lecture he gave in 1963 put it like this, quote, The structure known but not yet accessible by synthesis is to the chemist what the unclimbed mountain, the uncharted sea, the untilled field, the unreached planet are to other men. The unique challenge which chemical synthesis provides for the creative imagination and the skilled hands ensures that it will endure as long as men write books, paint pictures, and fashioning things which are beautiful or practical or both. Unquote. How did he figure these things out? We speculate that he thought through the synthesis mechanistically, that is, how in three dimensions would one break and make very specific chemical bonds. Recall that Christopher Ingold had just created the first modern library of organic reaction mechanisms in the 1930s, and Woodward took this to heart. To help prove he got what he wanted, he used the latest infrared instrumentation just now beginning to appear in modern chemical laboratories, showing the correct infrared absorption lines corresponding to particular molecular groups and structures. He instilled in his graduate students the idea that organic synthesis was almost a game or logic puzzle to solve. There was a strong sense of competition with several other international laboratories at Oxford University or the ETH, which stands for Eidgenössische Technische Hochschule in German, in Zurich, Switzerland. In a way, like the DNA story and competition between the UK and Pauling, here was another example of big science, like particle physics was to become in the next decades. There was, however, mutual trust between Woodward and Albert Eschenmoser at ETH. Together, they took on the problem of synthesizing vitamin B12. Vitamin B12's structure was solved in 1956 by Dorothy Hodgkin using X-ray crystallography. But now, could chemists make the complicated molecule? There was already a partial synthesis known, starting with the natural product, cobiric acid, yet another metal-organic coordination compound like chlorophyll and heme. In cobiric acid's case, the central metal ion was cobalt surrounded by an organic ring. So, Woodward and Eschenmoser had to figure out how to synthesize the cobiric acid. It took the teams till 1972 before a complete vitamin B12 synthesis was achieved. For all his synthetic organic chemistry, Woodward received the Nobel Prize in 1965. But the research into how to synthesize vitamin B12 pushed ahead theoretical organic chemistry as well. It went something like this. As I mentioned, Woodward's Boston-based group divided up the synthetic labor with Eschenmoser's Zurich-based group. 
the left half of the asymmetrical molecule was under research by Woodward, while the right half was done by Eschenmoser. There is a so-called principle of microscopic reversibility, created by American chemist Richard Tolman in 1924, saying that, at chemical equilibrium, the microscopic steps and reactions going on are exactly reversible. That is, they can go equally well forwards and backwards. So, if a molecule follows a particular reaction, the backwards step is equally likely. Well, the German chemist Emanuel Vogel published a paper in 1958 in the journal Justus Liebix Annalen der Chemie that 3,4-dicarboxymethoxycyclobutene could be cut up to get a particular stereoisomer of butadiene. The cyclobutene here is a square ring with two nearby COCH3 groups, and on the opposite side of the square, a double bond. Fogel's research showed that you opened up the ring and got a particular set of chiral carbons. So, by this principle of microscopic reversibility, the backwards reaction ought to give a particular stereoisomer. Then, in 1961, Dutch chemist Egbert Havinga reported that vitamin B12 split apart in a different way if you zapped it with light than if you heated it up. Ordinarily, you'd expect it to follow a Walden inversion, which we discussed a while back, where a molecule approaches another molecule from the back end, pushes out a leaving group, and inverts the tetrahedral umbrella of the chiral carbon. It shouldn't matter what energy you put in, the result ought to be the same. But it's not. Havinga suggested maybe the difference in products depends on symmetry of pi orbitals. See, symmetry is coming back to haunt us. Woodward saw a similar problem during synthesis of vitamin B12. At one of his late evening seminars, Woodward realized that bonding can only occur if the merging orbital lobes or blobs or probability volumes are in phase. You observed certain chiral carbons and their arrangements if the molecules could flex and bend around to get in-phase probability lobes to meet. If you heated your molecule, you just made bonds vibrate and flex. But if you zapped a bond with light, you could make the electrons do a quantum jump up to a higher orbital with a different phase and thus get a different product because of different matching lobes of probability. To work out the mathematics, Woodward discussed this idea with Polish-American theoretical chemist Roald Hoffmann, also at Harvard. The two came up with what are now called Woodward-Hoffmann rules, or the principle of orbital symmetry in the late 1960s. Along with various ideas on conservation of matter and energy and conservation of electric charge, they devised the conservation of orbital symmetry. If you take a deep dive into how Woodward-Hoffman rules operate, you will see how much they invoke molecular orbitals and energy levels of electrons in these orbitals. For us, we can just say that they demonstrated the power, even to synthetic chemists, of molecular orbital theory in predicting which reactions can and cannot go forward. Again, 
we are back to the old-fashioned questions of chemical affinity. For these Woodward Hoffman rules, Roald Hoffman earned himself a Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1981. Woodward, however, died in 1979, otherwise, likely he would have gotten himself a second prize. Hoffman himself is a most interesting person. He was born in Zwachow, in what was part of Poland between World Wars I and II, speaking Polish and Yiddish as a child. His father was in a Nazi labor camp, while the rest of the family was able to hide in a school building. His father was eventually tortured and killed, but he and his mother survived and made their way to the USA after the war. Also after the war, the town of Zwachow became incorporated into the western part of Ukraine. Outside of his chemical research, later in life Hoffman became a poet and playwright. His most successful play was co-written with another important chemist and Jewish survivor of World War II named Karl Gerasi. The play is called Oxygen and dramatizes the history of how oxygen was discovered in the later 18th century, which makes my mention of it here rather meta because it's about the history of chemistry and controversies over discovery priority. As to Carl Gerasi, we will discuss him in a future episode as well. Vitamin B12 in many ways marked itself as the Mount Everest of synthetic organic chemistry pursuits. Something vaguely like the song, New York, New York. If you can make vitamin B12, you can make pretty much anything. So, much of modern synthetic organic chemistry has become now, as William Brock has put it, quote, the challenge of invented molecules, preferably ones with freakish and amusing shapes, unquote. For example, my copy of the widely used undergraduate organic chemistry textbook called Organic Chemistry, what else did you expect, from 1980 by Pine, Hendrickson, Cram, and Hammond, on one page inside the front cover has a series of hydrocarbons that have been synthesized since 1970, which include weird paddle wheels, balls, giant rings of benzene rings, and more. On the other page inside the front cover are hydrocarbon structures not yet synthesized. We shall have a bit more to say about some unusual molecular structures in future episodes. In our next episode, we look at success with determining protein structure in the middle of the 20th century. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.